All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of On the Margin. Today, I am joined by repeat guest Yurian Timmer, who's the director of Global Macro at Fidelity. Yurian, welcome. Great to see you. Thanks. Yeah, Yurian, I think that's your formal title, but if I had to apply an informal title to you, I would say best dressed guy probably in in all of Boston, maybe even yeah. the whole Northeast. Um, Thank you. I try. <laughs> yeah, got very, very great style, my friend. Um, all right, let's let's get into it today. I, I love this. I love this chart here. And there's a periodic table of investment returns. This goes from 1984 to 2023. Um, very cool blending of the worlds of science and, and finance. Yurin, can you uh, kind of walk us through this chart and why you put it together? Yeah, and actually, and I actually have this data all the way back to the 1920s, but it creates an extremely uh, wide chart that doesn't look good on a on a screen that's this uh, in this format. So I just kind of took the last couple of decades, but it shows just a ranking of returns by for the asset classes that I cover uh, by year. Um, so it's not um, it's it's not optimized for the degree of the return, but it just shows you who's on top, who's on the bottom, who's in the middle, and uh, and you know we we tend to use this chart uh, or a version of it. In the industry, just to highlight that uh, each box is not usually, it do, usually doesn't stay in the same place for very long. And so it's a good uh, illustration to show why long-term investors, at least, uh, should should have a diversified portfolio because you never really know who's going to be where in the pecking order. So maybe have a little bit of everything, more of some, but but uh, but you know it 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 makes the case for a diversified portfolio and how hard it is to pick winners and losers on an ongoing basis, uh, you know, repeatedly. Yeah, and you know something that sort of stood out to me. Um, definitely the winner so far this year, you've got year to date at 2023 performance is large cap growth um, by a pretty wide degree. That's a 14.4% return so far this year. What do you what do you attribute that that growth to? Well, so last year, of course, was um, a 28% decline in the S&P. It was a, uh, a pretty um, widespread derating for all asset classes, stocks, bonds, mm-hmm. Crypto commodities, you name it, um, and it was basically the result of the Fed raising the cost of capital as the Fed started to to battle the inflation uh, dragon. And when the Fed raises the cost of capital, you plug that into a discounted cash flow model, and what you get is you know valuation is always the present value of future cash flows, and and that basically means you put cash flows in the numerator, uh, interest rates in the denominator of the discounted cash flow model. And as interest rates go up, all else being equal, the present value goes down. So last year was about that reset. And during that year, the large growers, you know, the FANG stocks, but not just the FANGs, but mega cap growers in general, which have had very high margins and very strong cash flow growth, um, they got, you know, really knocked down as interest rates came up because these stocks, by definition, are what we consider long duration stocks. They're not cyclical stocks, but they are secular growers. And so they are sensitive to the interest rate that you use to discount those cash flows. So they were kind of, um, you know, um, on the firing line last year. And then January uh, was obviously of this year a huge rebound. And then February was more mixed. And then March was a, a continued rebound. So the SP is up 7% year to date. And I think at this point, 
as investors start thinking about the, the possibility of a recession and they start seeing earnings growth uh, not only slow but now contract, um, I think investors are flocking to this group that obviously did so well during the pandemic recession, you know, the work from home, uh, the, the stay at home stocks. And so I think investors are just flocking back to that group, especially considering that last year, uh, the really defensive sectors like utilities and consumer staples and big pharma, uh, they, they did extremely well, but they got expensive in the process. They're, they've come down, back down in valuation now. But so this seems to be kind of the low-hanging fruit for investors uh, to hide in while they, they wait out this earnings contraction cycle. Yeah, it's a, it's a very, you know, you know what else was pretty interesting, Yuri, and to look at that, just when you're looking at these categories is that Europe is actually just behind uh, large cap growth, which was a little bit of a stunner for me. Yeah. So, so Europe is this kind of the stealth uh, winner so far this year. And I think it highlights, uh, obviously, the European indices. So this is the MSCI Europe index tends to be more value oriented than the S&P 500. You know, it has less, less tech, less growth, more banks. Uh, but it highlights that the, 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 the normalization since the pandemic has not been even, right? So the U.S. kind of was first in terms of the reopening trade. Then Europe uh, came behind that. And of course, now China is coming up very quickly behind that. And so this has been a kind of a sequential reopening. And if we, you know, you can look at the earnings data, uh, and I think we have a chart somewhere, but I don't want to take you out of sequence. But mm. uh, when you look at the global earnings cycle, you can see that European earnings um, are actually do, holding up a lot better than US earnings. And that's just because they're, they're, it's more of a desynchronized economic cycle now. Mm. You know, one uh, one question that I want to pose to you here, Yuri, and that I know we're going to be digging into a little bit later is, you know, is this the is this kind of a slight, almost dead cat bounce or mean reversion from the horrendous year that 2022 has been, or is it the start of another rally? And mm. I think uh, I think probably most people, if I had to try to guess, uh, would say that they're in the it's the dead cat bounce, slight bit of mean reversion here before the real slide starts. I do want to actually show you. Um, I'm gonna try to do a double double screen share here, but a pretty interesting. Uh, set of statistics here, uh, which Ryan Detrick posted, uh, which is when the S&P 500 gained over 7% in Q1, the full year has never been lower. So 16 out of 16 times, the full year finished in the green up 23.1% on average when you were that hot out of the gate. And the reason for that uh, 16 number is because only 16 times in the last, you know, at least going back to the 1950s, has uh, the S&P had this hot of a start to the year. So I guess just with that um, additional bit of context there, you're in, I'd be curious to to understand like where you where you kind of sit um, or how you would think about tackling that question. Yeah. So my my outlook for a number of months has been, uh, let's say, um, unsatisfying to some people because I've been calling for a big range um, um, as, and 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 in a year that is likely to, to uh, disappoint both bulls and bears alike. Hmm. Um, and the market does tend to spend time in trading ranges. We saw that in 94, in 2015. But people like to think in binary terms, you know, bull or bear, up or down. Uh, but I think the market is in a, in a digestion phase 
of you know persistently high inflation. Certainly, it's coming down, but it's still even the core PCE, which is the most generous way of looking at inflation, and the Fed's preferred way um, that um, is still running at four point six percent, coming down, but still twice the the Fed's uh, desired level. And meanwhile, you know we know about the signals from the yield curve, which has been very inverted for some time. The monetary aggregates are shrinking, and now we have you know some uh, some cracks in, in in the banking surface. And you put it all together, and you know the the, the possibility of a recession should not be dismissed. And we see that already uh, in the earnings a little bit. Earnings are coming down, at least in real terms, but even in nominal terms. But to answer your question, you know, I haven't seen that particular study, but I've studied the January barometer for a long time. And, you know, as, as January goes, so goes the rest of the year. As the first five days of January goes, so goes the rest of January and therefore the rest of the year. Um, I, I don't find that indicator that uh, that valuable simply because the January barometer can be applied to basically any month of the year and what and 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 you come out with the same outcome. So there's so it's true that if January is up, the rest of the year is more likely than not to be up. But that's that has nothing to do with January. It just means that markets tend to trend. And when a month is up or down, more often than not, that's part of a trend, and therefore the market will continue to go up or down. Um, and so that, to me, is what that means. Um, but certainly the market has been going up since October. Uh, last year, of course, was a very uh, a very harsh correction of 28%. Um, my sense is that this year will be a base-building year and that it really comes down to where we are on that intersection of falling earnings and a Fed that has pushed rates uh, to the to the breaking point. Basically, if you look at the bank headlines, uh, clearly, you know, the Fed, which typically tends to raise rates until something somewhere breaks. We, we never really know in real time what that is. But now we know what what broke and it was bank balance sheets, not because they were stuffed with bad loans or that they were stuffed with an over leveraged balance sheet, but just because they bought the safest assets you can find, uh, but they mm. bought them at yields that were extremely low and in retrospect, too low. Um, um, and so that's kind of where the, the the fissures are in in the in the banking sector. Um, so you know the the bears are in the camp where there's another shoe that is going to drop in the form of mm-hmm. a recession, negative earnings, and that the the market will do a repeat of let's say 2001 or 2008, where you have the initial part of the decline, which is more valuation, and then you have the second. Um, act, if you will, that is earnings-based. My sense is that the market can and will look past an earnings um, abyss or earnings valley. I I don't think we're going to have an abyss. Uh, It can look past that as long as the promise of an easier or more accommodative liquidity environment is there. And And we see this from market history, right? The market will bottom before earnings bottom, usually by several quarters, because by then the Fed has pivoted, is easing policy. You're in a recession, but we the Fed sees the the, the easier policy um, and it just extrapolates the future. And that that's why the market tends to bottom first. So, you know, to answer your question, for the market to be in, in a bounce that is more than a dead cat bounce here, uh, I think we would need to get we would need to have a Fed pivot that would allow the market to look past 
whatever earnings declines are that we're seeing. Um, we've, we've been in a trading range for basically nine months, right? From the June low of last year, which was not the final low, but that was basically the start of a long trading range that's now nine months old. And my guess is that we're going to stay in that range for a while longer. And we've been in a range not only in terms of price, but in, in PE as well. So the forward PE uh, has been basically stuck between 15 and a half and 18 and a half. We're at 18 right now. So my sense is that we're kind of closer to the upper limit of what the markets can do uh, than, 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 you know, than, than the alternative. Hello, hello, everyone. Thank you all for listening to On The Margin. Just wanted to give you guys a heads up about a conference that we have coming up in the new year called Permissionless. I'm sure most of you have been there last year. Uh, It is the cultural event of the year. We had over 5,500 people down in Palm Beach. This year, we are moving to Austin, Texas. You know what they say about Texas? Everything's bigger in Texas. Uh, so last year, we had a really great lineup of speakers. We had the two co-founders of Robinhood, Vlad Tenev and Baiju Bot. We had Chris Dixon. We had some of the folks that have been on the show a whole bunch of times, Jim Bianco, Dan Tapiero, just a phenomenal lineup of speakers, and you can expect the same this year. If you use Margin 10, you'll get 10% off on a ticket. Again, that's Margin 10, because I love you guys so much. Click the link at the bottom of the show notes. Hope to see you there in person. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, and I think this chart basically says that extremely well, uh, Urian. So we're looking at the the global earnings cycle here. You know, can, can you maybe comment a little bit on why, you know, I think one thing that has surprised at least a certain number of commentators over here in the US is just how robust the economy has been. Um, and that's both in terms of, you know, PE ratios, which I think has stayed above where most folks think that think that it would got to, but also just more mainstream indicators of economic strength. Um, so could you kind of maybe comment a little bit on on why we've seen that outperformance and then where we kind of sit in this market cycle from your perspective? Uh, sure, yeah. So, so this is the chart I was I was mentioning earlier. Uh, so this is a Z-score. Uh, and for those of you, who don't, of you who don't know what a Z-score is, it, it's just a way to detrend, kind of like a rate of change, but a longer one. This is a three-year Z-score. So if you take a series and you apply a Z-score, which is the latest point minus the average divided by the average, it detrends the series. So this shows, and, and it allows you to see the, the earning cycle, which I show here for the whole world, you know, by by region and by country, and what you can see is that the earnings down cycle and up cycle, they they you know they they together form about a four to five year cycle, which is the length of a typical business cycle, and so earnings peaked in um, in uh, late 2021, um, and so we're now in March of 2023, and to me that seems too brief for an earnings decline, unless it's really, really a very soft landing. Uh, And by the way, uh, speaking of of Europe earlier, you see that blue line, you see how that that blue line is holding up better than than the black line, which is the US line. And then China is all the way at the bottom, but hooking up. So that's that sequence of the US reopening first, then Europe, and now China. So you can kind of see that in in the chart. Um, So, you know, again, my guess is that earnings will continue to decline. My guess is that earnings will decline about 10% this year. 
but that's mostly uh, coming out of the margin, out of the profit margin. Because if you look at revenues per share, so sales, the top line, uh, they're still making new all-time highs. Now that that's in nominal terms, and obviously inflation's running at anywhere from five to six percent, depending on which series you use. So, uh, so in real terms, neither earnings nor revenues are are at all-time highs. But still, the fact that nominal revenues are making new highs tells you that the economy remains pretty robust. Um, and and we're seeing that in the data now. The, so my sense is that we've had kind of a rolling recession in a way. So the mm. PMI data, we had the ISM uh, manufacturing survey come out yesterday. It was at a new cycle low of about 46. So that clearly shows some weakness. Uh, but the unemployment rate is at, at a, you know, what is it, a 50-year low. Uh, people are getting paid. They have jobs. They actually still have some of the stimulus uh, money from COVID, uh, not not that much, but so the consumer, which is you know two thirds of the U.S. economy, is still doing all right. Now we're seeing mm. layoffs. We're, we just had the Jolts report, which is starting to show uh, some moderation from the very hot labor market conditions uh, of the last uh, year or so. So the economy is normalizing, as you would expect to see from the Fed raising rates from zero to almost five percent. But I think the resiliency in the economy, which is, I think, palpable, um, you know, I travel a lot. Um, I'm in a lot of hotels and a lot of airplanes. And so far, they've been pretty full for the last couple of years. So uh, I'm not seeing a lot of empty hotel lobbies uh, or, or airplanes these days. So my sense is that part of the the issue with the economy holding up, not that that's an issue because it's generally considered a good thing, but, mm. but part of the reason is that other than the banks, uh, uh, corporates as well as households um, have don't are not very sensitive to interest rates or not as sensitive as they used to be. And the reason for that is that households, you know, they've refinanced their mortgage probably a number of times during the low rate era, but especially in 2020 and 21 when rates were very low. Uh, you know, there's some data from Bloomberg that shows that most current mortgages were originated in those two years when mortgage rates were like three or below. And so if you look at a typical household, they've they've got a 30-year fixed rate mortgage at 3%. Um, they're not feeling the pinch so much of higher rates. Corporates have the same, the same thing. They all termed out their debt during the low rate era. So the only sector that is feeling the pinch are the banks, uh, because when the Fed did all of its quantitative easing in 2020 and 21. That created a surge in deposits which and reserves, which were then invested uh, either usually as loans um, or uh, or in the bond market. And a lot of banks, especially the ones that have, have been making the headlines, uh, were invested those excess reserves into you know treasuries and mortgage-backed securities, yielding very very low interest rates. And so they're feeling the pinch now that. Now that they have this duration mismatch between what they're paying on deposits or not paying on deposit um, and what they're earning on their portfolio. And by the way, the Fed uh, is at the center of that storm, if you will, because the Fed, uh, with its $8.3 trillion balance sheet, is sitting on a trillion dollar unrealized mm-hmm. loss on its portfolio, on what's called the system open market account. And so this is, uh, it, you know, it's not... 
that like the Fed's never going to have to realize those losses and banks don't either as long as their deposits stay up and they don't get uh, run afoul of capital ratios called the SLR, the supplemental uh, leverage ratio. But that's what happened with SIVB a, you know, a few weeks ago that they they lost some deposits they had to sell some of their assets and then they got a the, you know the, the 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 capital ratios didn't work anymore and then they had to do a capital raise so so we're seeing um, we're seeing some cracks on the surface of that side of the economy but households and corporates are still relatively immune to rate hikes and i think that's one of the reasons the economy is holding up yeah. You know, there was a really great interview my my colleague Jack Farley did uh, with a former central banker. I believe his name was, was Peter Stella. And he was sort of describing, you know, his thought process around the Fed's decision to keep buying MBS, you know, at uh, even when mortgage rates were so low. And you could almost see that $400 billion loss, which is what I think the unrealized loss on their portfolio of MBS is basically just a $400 billion gift to to homeowners, which is certainly quite quite the piece of of stimulus, um, yeah, and, and and when you think about what QE is supposed to do, uh, I mean, it's meant to do exactly that, right? I mean, they bought right. mortgage-backed securities to essentially subsidize, you know, homeowners, um, and um, and we now see that you know those numbers those numbers are real numbers. Correct. Yeah, yeah. I, I would love to get your your kind of thoughts here, um, and Crystal, if we couldn't get those those charts up again, you have a, a great. Kind of a, a range here, um, where where you know again, this is maybe this is where we we kind of fold into. There's been an enormous amount of uh, debate about do we have a hard landing, a soft landing, maybe no landing, and what you've shown here is the post grade financial crisis trend in terms of the S and P. So we've broken well out above that trend starting in uh, 2020, and we are kind of bouncing and looking like we were going to re-enter that trend, but we're still firmly, firmly above it. I suppose when you when you look at this and, you know, maybe it's time to caveat and say, you know, this isn't an exact science, but these these sorts of uh, patterns do tend to reemerge and be relatively good pro- uh, pro- projectors for price levels. You know, I'd be curious when you look at a chart like this, is your thought, yeah, we still have another leg down in order to, you know, kind of reestablish this trend. Or you said, no, you know what? Maybe you know, it's enough pain has been enough, and actually, this is the start of a of a higher trend. Yeah, and and you know, for me, this chart illustrates. You know, I always try to tell stories with my charts, and to me, the story of this chart is to show that from the financial crisis in 08 or the end of it until the be- until before COVID, right? So till about 2020. Uh, we had this very defined, well-defined uh, trend channel, uh, mm. which you can see on the on the top of the chart. And then COVID happened, and you know we had this incredible fiscal, monetary one-two punch of policy stimulus, the likes of which we haven't seen since the 1940s. And you know, you and I have talked about this as well as with Lynn Alden. Um, yeah. a very, very good parallel, even though the economy in many ways back then are, is totally different, was totally different from today. But that parallel exists. Um, and again, coming back to uh, the discounted cash flow model, the DCF, which is a, a frustratingly uh, it, the model is frustrating because there's so many variables and you can't solve for all of them at the same time. But it's a very elegant model in in being able to weave all of the moving parts in there. And and like I said earlier, 
the numerator is earnings or cash flows, um, and the new, and the denominator is uh, the cost of capital, liquidity, interest rates, etc. And what happened during COVID because of this policy response is that the Fed financially repressed rates to uh, really unsustainably low levels, right? When you look at real rates, uh, nominals minus the tips break-evens, they went to minus 2%, and they stayed there for a while, while at the same time, the, the government was pumping a lot of money into the economy via fiscal stimulus, you know, the CARES Act, the PPP, stimulus checks, et cetera. And I, in retrospect, you know, hindsight being 2020 and all, uh, I think it was too much for too long, uh, not to criticize the policy response because, you know, you never know in real time how much is enough or too much. But I think we can probably all agree, including the Fed, that they probably should have normalized policy sooner. Um, but in any case, when rate because rates were pushed down so much, it elevated the present value of future cash flows, which is mm-hmm. you know the DCF model, and you can see that in this chart, right? In March of 2020, the PE was 14. By uh, the middle of 2021, it was 29, and you can see in the top panel the black line uh, coming. You know, it from pre-COVID to post-COVID, it went from the top of the channel to the bottom, so like perfectly symmetrical there, and then. I think because of this repression in interest rates, uh, we had essentially a little bubble, right? We had an asset bubble, mm. not only in the bond market, but in the stock market, in crypto, like almost any market you can think of. 2021 was was kind of a frenzy in that sense. And you can see the, the price or the total return in this case going well above that channel. And to me, that is how I illustrate that we had a little asset bubble um, where the PE basically doubled in the span of you know a year. So the good news is that that bubble has completely corrected. If you look at the PE, we went from 29 back to 16 and we're now at 19 on it. This is using trailing earnings, but the price never went all the way back into that channel. And again, this is just a technical chart that there's nothing really predictive in it. And, right. and whether we go deeper into the channel or not, uh, I I don't know. I think you know if if we get that earnings, if we get a severe recession, uh, and we have like an, an and, and the earnings shoe drops, and it's too big for the market to kind of look past a because it's too big, or b because the Fed can't pivot as quickly as it has in the past because inflation is still well above trend. So that that would be the scenario where we have a, another leg down where this is kind of a wave A and B, and then we have another C wave down. But you know, who knows, right? Um, inflation is slowing. So far, the earnings contraction has been pretty modest. And so maybe maybe going back towards that center line is all we're going to do. And, and ultimately, valuation is more important than price, as far as I'm concerned. And so mm. the fact that we're sitting on a 19 trailing multiple it's still above average historically, but it sure as hell is a lot better than the 29 that we saw just you know a, a little while ago. Urian, one quick little sidecar to this, and uh, you know I don't want to take us too far off on a tangent here, but underneath the trend that you've put together for the S and P, we're also looking at price to earnings um, since July 2008, um, and you know in kind of June of 2011, right? Around, or actually, I can see here in um, you know in between July of uh, 08 and 09, you know, it seemed like we bottomed around 9.9 times, you know, at the peak of COVID, we peaked at 28 times. And now we're about, 
19, which is still kind of above the trend of the last couple of years. You know, do you have a thought on should price to earnings kind of stay stagnant over long periods of time? Or you could kind of make the argument that with retained earnings, right, over a period of time, maybe the ratio of PE slightly moves up, right? Because companies have theoretically accumulated, you know, cash flows that can be used to buy back uh, stock or invest in new and exciting projects. And um, even with the same sort of financial profile, there's kind of the, the balance sheet component that might command a slightly higher ratio. I don't know if you have thoughts there. Uh, yes. I mean, I, I mean, these are all cap-weighted indices, of course, and uh, at the top of the cap spectrum are, of course, the big companies with uh, a gigantic hoard of cash, and that cash is worth right. something, right? So, um, so, so yes, I, I do agree that over time, uh, even though the PE over over several hundred years, the average is about fifteen or so. Over time, there is a slight improvement on that, and part of that has to do with lower interest rates. You know, PEs tend to be uh, tend to be inversely correlated to inflation, and of course, interest rates usually reflect inflation trends. So, in in that sense, given that inflation is still quite high, uh, the the nineteen PE seems too high on the surface because higher inflation means lower PEs, and and this is kind of part of one of the the big questions facing the markets, right? When you look at the tips market, which is the part of the the bond market that that looks at uh, interest rates in real terms, and 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 through that process, you can derive what the market expects inflation to be. Um, you know, the the market is not believing that inflation is going to be structural. Like the tips break even curve uh, falls from its current level of uh, in the threes um, all the way down to about 2.3, and it stays there for the next five to 10 years. That's the belief of the tips market. And if you look at the valuation here on the equity side, it would imply that the equity market also doesn't think inflation is going to stay at four or five percent for very long, and and they're probably correct. I mean, the, the trajectory for inflation is clearly coming down, but the question is, does it go all the way down to the Fed's target of two, or does it say stay somewhere north of that? And it, and if we are embarking on an era of structural inflation of let's say three to four instead of one to two then that would argue that the tips market is A, incorrect, and B, valuations are are too high. And yeah, here in this chart, you can see historical tips curves, right? So there's a one-year tip, a two-year, a three-year, four-year, five, all the way up to, to 30. And when you, when you create that strip of the forward curve for expected inflation, those are the gray squiggly lines there. And then the black line is current curve. And so what the tips market shows is that throughout the history of the tips curve, which is only about uh, a couple of decades, um, the, the tips market always assumes that inflation is going to mean revert back to 2%. And until and, and so far, the tips market has always been correct because it's only existed in the disinflationary world. So if, if we are really going to have structural inflation, then the markets are probably not placed directly for that. Yeah, well, well said, Gurian. And, you know, I kind of want to get into, you have a, a slide that I'm going to, as soon as I can find it here, I'm going to pull up, uh, just kind of on your thoughts of what you think is going to happen with the S&P 500. Uh, and then I'd love to get into that, uh, that second part of what we were just starting to talk about, which is the sort of the Fed reaction function in all of this. Because again, they've got a pretty difficult kind of skill and Charybdis type situation here where they're dealing with increasing cracks in the financial edifice 
uh, but at the same time, they've still got pretty rampant inflation. So you've got this chart here on um, S&P 500 valuation and momentum. You want to talk a little bit about why you put this chart together? Yeah, so this chart shows, this is a daily chart going back about uh, four years, three, four years, uh, and it shows the forward PE. And of course, with the caveat that the forward PE is only as good as the E, so it's not a, a perfect uh, indicator, but it, but the market always discounts the future, not always correctly, but it does always discount it. So looking at forward PEs generally makes more sense than looking at trailing PEs because trailing PEs are, are yesterday's news. Um, and it shows that usually the forward PE is lower than a trailing PE because earnings tend to go up over time. So that's why in this chart, the high of the range is, is 23, whereas in the previous chart, it was 29 because that was trailing and this is forward. But what you see here is that post the pandemic uh, crash in 2020, market rebounded very quickly. Um, and it was correct in doing that because essentially earnings bottomed two quarters later. And typically during bear markets, price bottoms two quarters ahead of earnings. So in as little sense as it made in real time uh, on the surface, it actually the market did exactly what it normally does during the pandemic cycle. Uh, but then because of the aforementioned financial repression by the Fed, the PE went went way up and it went all the way up to 23. And it stayed in a range of about 20 to 22 or so until the bear market began in January of last year. And then the PE went to 15 or so. And it's been in a range of 15 uh, to 18 and a half, and we're at about 18 today. And so it's just a, a, another way of showing that the market's been stuck in a range. Uh, and I think valuation is always uh, a good way to look at markets with, with that uh, caveat that you know the E, you, you need to solve for the E, but I find valuation to be more relevant than price in many cases. So it just shows that the market remains in a state of limbo, basically. Uh, it's the, it's basically liquidity limbo um, because the market keeps expecting the Fed to pivot and the Fed keeps pushing back on that narrative saying, not so fast, we're going to be higher for longer. And of course, the stress in the banking system that surfaced a few weeks ago uh, caused the market to expect a, a an, an immediate pivot, like 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 today, you know, start cutting, uh, you know, in, in at the next FOMC, and I think the the Fed is already uh, pushing back on that. And and you know, speaking of the Fed, which you were asking about, mm. and maybe we can pull up the previous slide. Yeah, this one. Um, I, I think what the Fed is 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 very clearly doing here is that it's trying to thread a needle between uh, keeping policy tight to in order to rein in inflation. And I think the Fed is very, very uh, deliberate about maintaining its credibility as an inflation fighter. Um, you know, Arthur Burns was the Fed chairman during the 1970s, and he basically let the inflation genie out of the bottle because the Fed stayed too loose for too long, despite a very big inflation problem. And then inflation got unanchored, inflation expectations got unanchored. So I think the Fed is still very much dealing with the ghosts of Arthur Burns and not wanting to uh, repeat that mistake. So and this, so this is why the Fed 
has not pivoted yet uh, in any way. Um, and, and because it would have done so a few years ago when inflation was not a clear and present danger. Remember the, the pivot at the end of 2018, there was no inflation. Market was down 20%. The economy was fine, but the Fed pivoted just for that reason. Uh, and you would think that with Silicon Valley Bank and a few others, um, you know, are, uh, with them being under stress, in, in a in a from as a direct result of the Fed cycle, that normally the Fed would have at least started to um, rein in its its hawkish rhetoric, but it has not done that uh, because um, I think inflation is the primary driver. So how does the Fed thread the needle? Well, it does so by providing liquidity. Uh, to the banking system, or basically anyone who needs it, including dollar swap lines for other central banks. Um, and the Fed is doing its normal job as uh, in terms of being a lender of last resort. I mean, that is one of the Fed's jobs is to be a lender of last resort. But that could be in the form of policy easing. But in this case, it is not, at least in, in my opinion, it's not. There's a lot of people who call the BTFP, the bank term funding program that the Fed created uh, in the wake of the SIVB um, uh, collapse. Uh, a lot of people call that QE because they look at the balance sheet. It's growing. That's all I need to know. The Fed is printing money. Uh, I don't think it's that simple. Uh, and this chart sort of illustrates that. Uh, the gray bars shows the system open market account, the SOMA, which is the part of the Fed's balance sheet where QE happens or takes place. And you can see, obviously, during COVID, it, it ballooned up and it's been shrinking since 20, early, early 2022. That's QT or quantitative tightening. And then the gray line is the Fed funds target rate, which, of course, has been going up as the Fed has been raising rates. And then the purple bars is the are if you look at if you dissect the Fed's balance sheet, there are assets on the SOMA, and then there are loans. And you know, back in 2008, that, those loans were called something else. Today, they're called the BTFB. And I think the Fed would make the argument that that is not easing, and I would agree with that because temporary collateralized loans at a somewhat punitive interest rates of about 5% um, is not the same as open-ended asset purchases. They're just not, they have the same effect on the balance sheet, but they don't have the same effect in terms of policy. And in that sense, I think it's instructive, and I, I don't have the chart on this with me, um, but it's instructive to think back to uh, a now forgotten episode in the UK last fall when we had uh, a, a little bit of a meltdown in the UK government bond market. Those are called gilts. And there was a new prime minister, Liz Truss. She lasted all of 44 days and there were all kinds oh, yeah. of memes about the head of lettuce and this and that. Um, but she came up with an ambitious fiscal uh, stimulus proposal that the bond market uh, you know, very quickly shot down. And the Bank of England, as a result, had to go into the market and buy gilts. And a lot of people thought, oh, see, that's that's the beginning of QE infinity. Um, and the, the BOE made it very clear that these were temporary purchases. They had a very specific shelf life. And then the BOE would continue to tighten policy. And that's exactly what, what happened. So the purchases ended. The overall balance sheet kept shrinking, interest rates kept rising, and they still are. And so this chart looks identical to what the Bank of England chart looked like six months ago. And I think this is how the Fed 
is trying to calibrate this. So provide all the liquidity that's needed while at the same point, at the same time, still raising rates, or at least maybe not raising them, but at least keeping them above what we consider a neutral policy until inflation gets closer to the Fed's target. Yeah, Yuri, and very well said. And I think Twitter is is definitely no place for for nuance. And I think the the folks who are calling for the restart of QE prematurely are definitely a little bit little bit ahead of their skis. I think you know I've I've tried to think about this as well and just categorize what, what do I think is happening when I watch that balance sheet number go up because I understand that my my sort of mental framework for BTFP is that they're throwing a lifeline to banks, right? It's pretty hard to construct. The argument this is that this is going to be inflationary whatsoever, but I do, you know, I think it's impossible to not sort of notice that over the last basically since two thousand eight two thousand nine, there has been an enormous amount of talk about reducing the size of the balance sheet, and every time it looks like they start to get some success, uh, something ends up happening and it restarts growth at, at an even far more accelerated rate, and it's all different reasons each time. But I will say it's about. You know they're usually successful in getting rid of it by about one trillion dollars or just under that number, and then something happens. So a definition that I've started to give myself for this is just this is representative of the amount that the Federal Reserve has to intervene in markets to keep them orderly. Yeah. Now I'm not 100% you know sure where to go with that. There's a lot of different interpretations there, but I I guess my question to you is: Do you agree with that definition? Does that seem fair? And, and you know when you see this number going up, what does that tell you? No, I, I I do agree with that um, uh, with what you're saying, and it's true that you know we're we're still living in the kind of the, the QE era, and you know there's no way the Fed is going to shrink its balance sheet back to pre-COVID days. And if you look at um, bank reserves, excess reserves, you know they're still very large, and 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 deposits are still very high because a lot of those reserves end up as deposits. Um, but for the smaller banks, the reserves have really whittled down. So it, it's created a two-tier banking system. So what we see now with the Fed raising rates and shrinking liquidity until something breaks, and we know what broke now during this cycle, it shows that the Fed is reaching the limits of what it can do. And again, coming back to the 1940s, um, it's instructive to think of you know the QE days back then. Not many people realized that the Fed did quantitative easing in the 1940s. They think the financial crisis was the first time they ever did that. But from 1942 to 1946, when the, when the U.S. government ramped up uh, spending to uh, join World War II, um, the Fed, which was not independent yet at the time, was tasked with monetizing that debt. And the Fed increased its balance sheet tenfold during those uh, four years. Now, as a percentage of GDP, it was tiny. It was only 2% of GDP. Um, and the Fed did try to kind of reverse that, but only very, very modestly back in the later 40s and, and the 50s. But the way the Fed shrank its balance sheet in the end of the day was we had an economic boom back then and, uh, in, in terms of we had inflation and massive growth because of the Marshall Plan and the rebuilding of the world economy driven by the U.S., of course, this is the 1950s. And so the Fed's balance sheet as a percentage of GDP, which is how we think of debt levels as well, uh, shrank dramatically. You know, the debt to GDP shrank from 120 percent in the 40s to 30 percent in the 70s. But it was all because of growth and inflation. 
and uh, and not because of austerity. Austerity tends to not win you a lot of uh, political followers uh, when you're in the government. So my sense is that the Fed will grow out of this balance sheet over time um, through either growth or inflation or financial repression, negative rates, that sort of thing, devaluation, basically, which is kind of part of the do- the, of the whole dollar narrative right now. Yeah, here you see um, real rates um, and upside down in the purple bars that show the debt to GDP. And, and it's interesting, actually, debt to GDP in the U.S. Uh, has come way down in the last couple of years because nominal GDP has been so strong, right? It was at 130% in 2021 i guess it was and it's it's you know it's still very high at about 118 or 116% but it's doing what i think the government needs it to do which is when you have a lot of debt you need to keep rates low and you need for inflation or growth to kind of bail you out so back to, back to your question about the fed's balance sheet i do think we're in a permanently high balance sheet environment, not just for the Fed, but the Bank of England, uh, uh, the, the Bank of Japan, the ECB, uh, all the major central banks, Switzerland as well. And I think that is that is a long-term feature because debt levels are so high that interest rates have to remain low in one way or the other. And QE is one way to do it. Yield curve control is another one. That's what the Fed also did in the second half of the 40s. And it would not surprise me at all if the Fed were to resort to that. Again, keeping keeping a hawkish line, but at the same time, kind of tinkering with the balance sheet in order to keep real rates at some kind of manageable level. Hey, everyone. Just want to do a quick shout out to this episode's sponsor, Public. Public, most of you guys probably know them. They're a great company. It's an investing platform. They allow you to invest in everything that you might possibly want from individual stocks to ETFs to crypto. And they even have some cool stuff in the alternative space like fractionalized fine art, all that kind of cool stuff. Great company. But two things that I want to call out about them specifically. One, it's everything that you could want to invest in in one spot. If you're like me, I've got kind of my TradFi brokerage set up over here, and then I've got all things crypto and digital assets over here. They don't really talk to each other. It's like an okay setup, but it's not ideal. Public.com fixes that because it's everything that you need all in one place. You have perfect visibility in a company that I trust. Second, and here's something that you should definitely check out. Click the link at the bottom of this page, but they just launched something called Treasury Accounts. Now, not an investing expert. None of this is financial advice, but if you've been good listeners on, on the margin, which I know you have, you know that those treasury yields just keep going up, 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 up. And at the time of the recording, you can get you know, close to 4.8% in yield from the US government. Now, that's a very attractive proposition. The problem is getting access to that yield is actually really tricky right now. You either have to go through a bank or you have to navigate some ancient government website that looks like it was designed in the 90s. Public fixes all of that and they will even reinvest your bills at maturity, which let's be honest, no, you guys are diligent. Me, I'm lazy. I love that they take that extra step for me. So anyway, it's a great product. Highly recommend that you go check them out. Click the link at the bottom of this episode. Go to public.com slash on the margin. Again, guys, give your friend a little credit here. Click the link at the bottom of this episode. And tell them I sent you. I want to dig into a little bit deeper into some of those ideas that you were just mentioning. And this is something that you and I have talked about. And I think we've talked about it with Lynn and Lynn has probably done the best, um, the best work on kind of comparing this particular moment in time to the 1970s, the 1940s, and where does it really apply? And 
you know, I'm I'm a little bit more in the camp of I think the 40s is the better analog to look at. But I would point out two pretty large differences in between now and the 40s. And you couldn't really see them quite so much on on charts as much as I love the the beautiful charts that you put together. And, you know, one of the big differences is if we look at the catalyst for what caused this, you know, probably period of financial oppression that we're going to have to endure. In the 1940s, it was World War II. There was an existential threat coming from a place outside of the United States that united everyone in the economy, right? My grandpa, this is so crazy to me, he left college. You know, he got a scholarship to go to college. He left college one term early because he was that eager to go fight for his country. Just think about how unlandish, you know, outlandish that sounds right now. Um, as opposed to COVID, uh, you know, right now, which, you know, half the country thinks, uh, you know, was some sort of existential threat and then half the country thinks was overreach. It's actually created more more division, I would say, uh, not less. And then the technological boom that that came back in the 1940s was one of industry, right? Um, and it got created a lot of jobs for a lot of people, right? And kind of led to this manufacturing boom that was good for the middle class in the US. Whereas now there's a lot of exciting technological development, but it's it's kind of like crypto and it's AI. And those are very exciting. But I think at least in the interim, the worry is that they're highly deflationary and they don't require a whole lot of jobs. Maybe down the line, they'll create many more jobs and we'll increase our outputs and all that stuff. But I see those as kind of the two big differences in between now and the 1940s. I'm curious you know, what your yeah. thoughts might be on that. Uh, I mean, especially on your first point, uh, I mean, it, you couldn't be more correct. I mean, uh, the war was a, a, a unifying um, threat and you know the pandemic should have been maybe, but it wasn't. Um, the 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 government response I think is still similar, right? It was a, a a an attack from the outside, if you can think of COVID as that, uh, that prompted a very large outsized policy response, uh, creating this huge fiscal impulse, uh, essentially monetized by monetary policy. I mean, the Fed would. I'm sure vehemently argue that they were not monetizing this as a co-conspirator, but ultimately what they did during COVID is kind of the same as what they did in the 1940s. So from that perspective, um, it is like a world war and it was global because all countries, you know, did this, uh, but it wasn't necessarily supported by the population the way it was back then. But in terms of the fiscal monetary response, I think the similarities are very high. Um, in terms of, you know, technology and productivity and inflation, um, and, and demographics are part of that as well, right? The population is aging and history would suggest that when the labor force growth is declining and populations are declining, we look at Japan and we see how deflationary that's been. And the impulse is to say, yeah, so that's different this time because Back in the late 40s, we had inflation running at 20%, and the Fed somehow was able to maintain bond yields at 2% while inflation was 20%, which is pretty amazing. Um, I don't think the Fed would be as successful doing that uh, today. Uh, but one thing that's changed in recent years with the pandemic absolutely actually uh, playing a large role in that is that you know when we look at Japan and the deflationary tendencies of demographics, uh, in in the Japan kind of QE era of the last ten years or so, that happened during a very abundant of uh, 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 availability of global labor, right? So China 
uh, joining WTO and, and unleashing that whole labor arbitrage and Eastern Europe after the uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall doing the same thing. Uh, that labor arbitrage, arbitrage has been kind of played out. So even though we, we could see deflationary trends coming from, you know, all the technological innovation that we're seeing, um, that labor force uh, um, dynamic is no longer the tailwind that it was. And that's why even though our population growth is following on the footsteps or on the heels of what happened in Japan maybe 10 to 15 years ago, um, maybe we can't really extrapolate that we're going to be as deflationary, the the the, the innovations notwithstanding. And actually, Lynn has been very, very good on pointing out the differences between Japan then and the U.S. now. So I do see the uh, the, the the plausibility of kind of a a higher than normal inflation regime playing out because you know we did lose three million people. During the pandemic, not, not 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 to the pandemic, but uh, baby boomers who left the labor force, right. immigration that was stopped, you know, because borders were closed, and so that's that's I think how we explain, uh, you know, the, the 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 wage pressures that we're seeing um, in the economy, um, and also we have this battle, right? The pendulum swinging from capital to labor, um, you know, the capital owners have been in the driver's seat for a long time. And now, just like the 1970s, maybe labor is coming back as that labor arbitrage has played out and as companies reshore. Because remember, for every job that's lost, or not for every job, but as jobs are being lost to technology, uh, jobs are being gained from reshoring, you know, the CHIPS Act and, and things like that. So uh, I think when we weigh all of these things together, I could see inflation being maybe a little stickier than than it has been, maybe Three to four. I'm not an economist, so I'm just kind of, uh, I'm just just guessing here, um, and I don't think that's going to cause tremendous imbalances in terms of Fed policy. But it also prevents the Fed from exercising that Fed put as quickly as it has in the past. Yeah. So maybe just to to return here to what we kind of were we're getting at in the meat of our conversation. Maybe this is a good place to end. Is I think so much of this right? There's going to be some form of. Uh, some form of recession, most likely. And this is probably something that we've known for a long time, but that monetary uh, policy has long and variable lags, right? And just how long and just how variable is always difficult to pinpoint. But we did begin our, our rate hikes back in March of 22. This is the first day, first couple of days of April of, of 23. So it makes sense that we start to see uh, the 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 delayed effects of some of these lags as you're seeing kind of in, in the banking system. Yeah. Um, you know, my, my question to you is, you know, what what are your kind of thoughts just on like earnings recession, how the S&P does to shake throughout the year? And then, you know, what is the what is what's your best guess at what the Fed reaction function, you know, is going to be to this? So I, I think when we when we write the history books or read the history books on this whole COVID era, um, mm-hmm. I think it will be fairly clear uh, and again, I, I don't like to criticize the Fed too much because I think they're public servants doing the best thing they can with mm-hmm. a pretty impossible task of, of uh, managing a dual mandate of full employment and price stability, both of which are lagging indicators, right? So you set you set a, a, a leading policy with reper- re- repercussions far into the future on the basis of lagging indicators. And 
how can you not get policy errors with that approach, right? And this is why the business cycle tends to have this boom-bust feature where the Fed tightens until something breaks. And something, of course, has broken during this cycle in, in the form of these, these few banks. Uh, I don't think it's a systemic banking crisis, so I don't think this is like the GFC um, uh, at all, but, but it shows you that the Fed has reached the limits. And so if we go back and we want to be Monday morning quarterbacks, um, you know, I'm, I'm not judging the policy response during COVID because it was this, you know, hundred year storm, self-induced coma in terms of the global economy. So uh, I, I applaud the Fed as well as the, the government the fis- on the fiscal side for responding so quick, right? What took months to do during the financial crisis happened in days or weeks during COVID. So hats off to that. But I think uh, it's pretty clear that the inflation threat was underestimated um, and that I think part of the threat was for things that nobody could have predicted, Russia, Ukraine, like, like you know, uh, things um, uh, of that nature. But part of it, maybe if, if the Fed had studied history more, and I think the Fed studies history all the time, but what the 40 show is that when you combine monetary policy and fiscal policy and you do it in a really big size, it's going to have an impact. And I think that's what happened in 2020. And I think some of the inflation that we're still seeing today maybe still comes from that. So doesn't mean the Fed shouldn't have done what it did, but I think it does mean that the Fed should have normalized policy sooner. Um, and, and you know, maybe the Fed in behind closed doors would, would agree with that. And there were very specific reasons why the Fed did not respond so quickly, A, because it thought inflation was transitory, and, and of course it wasn't, but B, the Fed has learned from having underperformed its inflation target for so long, right? Since the financial crisis, inflation has generally been below the Fed's 2% target. So as a result of that, the Fed went to you know AIT, average inflation targeting, and basically said, look, we're not going to respond. We're not going to tighten until we see the whites of the eyes of inflation. And by the time during this cycle, we saw the whites of the eyes of inflation, it was too late, right? Inflation was at 9%. Uh, the other reason the Fed kind of moved too slowly is because the Fed was doing quantitative easing at the time, and it learned from 2013, 10 years ago during the taper tantrum, that you have to message this stuff well in advance. You got to say, at this point, down in, uh, out in the future, we're going to reduce our asset purchases, and then we're going to stop them, and then we're going to shrink the, the balance sheet, and you have to telegraph all this stuff to the market. And if you're doing that, you can't raise rates until you actually have done all of those things, because you can't be raising rates while increasing the balance sheet at the same time. Um, and so the Fed had to wait with raising rates until it did all of that on the balance sheet. And by the time it did it all, it was, like you said, it was a year ago already, um, and, and the inflation genie was, was well out of the bottle. So for a variety of reasons, um, the Fed waited too long. And by moving too slowly at first, it had to move too quickly all of a sudden. And the risk, of course, is that when you are moving policy that quickly, um, you can't really measure in real time very well what the impacts are, are on the economy and on the financial system because you're moving in such large increments so quickly. And in retrospect, we see that the Fed reached a breaking point, not a systemic one in my view, but still a breaking point. And 
to your recession question, uh, you know, if if banks need to now compete for their deposits more than they have in the past, because remember the the rate the average rate paid on bank deposits is half a percent. Money mm. markets are paying four and a half percent, ten x that of bank deposits. And you know you had the chart up earlier. Uh, we don't need to show it, but uh, you, you can see that money is moving out of the banks into money markets and other places, uh, T bills, etc. And so as banks need to compete for those deposits through higher rates, it's going to affect their, their what we call the NIM, the net that interest margin. Um, mm-hmm. And that means they, or at least that could mean that they're going to lend less money out in, into the economy or be more choosy about what money they lend into the economy. That could create a credit crunch. And a credit crunch is a, a feature of many, many recessions in the past. And it could be the catalyst that, you know, again, when we look back months ago, when the yield curve started to invert, you say, well, we know from history that that always has a bad ending in terms of it leading to a recession. But it's a very it's a notoriously difficult indicator because the timing is all over the place. You don't know the magnitude. You don't know the duration. Um, and, and then for the markets, you still then you need to know what's already priced in or not. And so it's not a very a good indicator uh, from that perspective. But what you see when the inc- when the yield curve inverts is that you need a catalyst uh, to actually bring that to life. And I think this asset liability mismatch that we're seeing in the banking system uh, could be that catalyst. So I think a recession, when you look at the yield curve, you look at money supply growth, you look at now at potentially a credit crunch coming in the banks, or at least some of the banks, not the big, super large banks, but the rest of the banking system. You could see a recession taking hold second half of this year into next year. That should knock earnings down, and earnings are already coming down because profit margins have eroded. But then it really comes down to the duration and and magnitude of that earnings decline and how quickly the Fed offsets it through easier policy. And so in that case, the kind of the worst case scenario would be uh, a severe earnings contraction, which is not not my my outlook. But if that were to happen while the Fed uh, stayed remained very restrictive because of inflation, then again, going back to that DCF model, then you're losing on both the top side of the equation and the bottom side simultaneously. And that would be your, your perfect bear market storm. Um, I, I don't think that's what's going to happen. But that, like, if I if I were asked to present the bearish case, that's that's how I would present it. Mm. Yeah, very well said, Jaren. Any, any um, maybe if I could get you to leave us with the, the bullish case as well for why this might not be that bad? Or what's the best possible outcome that we could have here? So, so the bullish case is for inflation to keep coming down. And uh, it may not lead the Fed to an imminent pivot. I think that's somewhat wishful thinking. Mm-hmm. But at least it would give the Fed some some comfort that it doesn't have to keep raising rates and that uh, it can start normalizing policy sooner. And again, if the Fed were to cut rates tomorrow, um, most people would think that as an easing cycle, and and I guess it, it that is true. The Fed would see it, I think, as a normalization of policy, right? So if a neutral policy is, let's say, three three and a half percent, an easy policy is, let's say, zero to one or two, and a tight policy is five and above. If the Fed went to from five to three, 
I think in its eyes, it would just say we don't we no longer need to be restrictive. We can be at neutral, which which would be the base case. Now, the pendulum is always swinging. So the Fed is rarely at neutral. It's either going through it on one in one direction or the other. But I think that's but I think that's how the Fed would see it. So um, one bullish factor is the fact that we have had this sort of staggered sequence of uh, economic reopenings where Europe is now a tailwind for the global earnings picture. China is now becoming a, a very big tailwind. You know, the Chinese economy has op- reopened overnight. If you look at the air travel data in China, they're they're like practically back to normal when they were when no one was traveling just three months ago. And so that's going to be a global tailwind for the global earnings picture. And um and so I, I do I, I do see the kind of the glass half full in that sense. And we've already languished for nine months in this kind of market limbo. And at some point, the market's going to declare itself. I don't think it's going to be today. Uh, the, the strength in the market has been mostly the FANG stocks, right? If you look at at the bottom 490 stocks in the S&P, market's not going anywhere. And I think that that will persist for some time. But you know, if you're a long-term investor, it's not the end of the world. You know, you have a balanced, diversified portfolio. Bonds are kind of doing what they what they should be doing again. Uh, that certainly wasn't the case last year. So, some form of 60-40, uh, maybe with a little gold in it as well, or a store of value of some kind in it. Um, I, I think is is a pretty is a pretty sensible approach uh, during a time when we don't really know what tomorrow is going to bring. Yeah, a little dose of uh, eminently reasonable thought there to conclude <laughs> us. Yurian, uh, as as usual, it's a, just a genuine pleasure to have you on the show. If folks want to find out more about you or the good work that you do, what's the best way to to get more information? Um, at, at Timur Fidelity on Twitter, uh, and uh, just punch in my name on LinkedIn, and it's just basically the same content. But, but Twitter would be the easiest place. Amazing, Yurian. Thanks very much for a super interesting conversation. We'll have to do it again soon. Great. Thank you for having me. 